You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. So uh, Genesis 49 uh, is, is the end. We're going to finish Genesis today. We're going to look at 49 and 50. Um, you guys, any of y'all like fortune cookies? That sounds like a, like a non-manly thing to love, but I love fortune cookies. Um, I love opening fortune cookies with my kids. I like to add the words in bed at the end of my fortune. I don't know if you guys do that or not, but that's what I like to do and text it to my wife when I open a fortune cookie. But, um, but, but chapter 49 is kind of like a fortune cookie type chapter. Jacob begins to bless all of his sons and really more than just blessings. If you got a Bible that's got headings in it, it'll probably say Jacob blesses his sons or something like that. But some of them don't feel like blessings some of them are you know not not real great like you ever open a fortune cookie and it doesn't make sense or it's bad you know it's like ah, don't feel real good about that one um, and so that's what we're going to see in the, at the end of the, the book and how uh, kind of the legacy of Jacob and Joseph kind of lives on through them and what they uh, want to see in their kids and and I think one of the beautiful things we see at the end of Genesis is how that doesn't always work out perfectly it doesn't always express itself perfectly and so as a church especially as men of our church um, it's good for us to realize that we're going to be imperfect in the way that we lead. Um, whether you're a father or not, you're going to be imperfect in the way that you lead. Um, and your, your kids or, or the generation that comes up after us are going to be imperfect in the way that they follow. Uh, but we serve a perfect God. Amen. And I think that's what this reminds us of. And so um, four things I want to show you in this is a blessed legacy, then a cursed legacy. Um, a holy legacy from specifically Joseph, and then a hopeful promise will be our outline today. Um, let me read the first two verses to start off. It says, uh, chapter 49, verses 1 and 2 says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So this kind of sets the scene. Jacob gathers everyone together. He says, listen, I want to tell you what's going to happen. So this is kind of like a, it, it, it makes me think of like the night before Christmas, you know, like everybody's in their jammies, gathered around this old man. And it's, it seems like a really sweet moment. Um, until he jumps in, he starts actually saying what he's going to say. And some of it's pretty bad, but we're going to start on a, on a good note uh, with the blessed legacy. So what I want to do is I want to look at each of his 12 sons, and I, I want to kind of categorize them. There are actually five that he has very uh, promising and good prophecies about, five that are not so good. And so let's look at the five good ones first in a, a blessed legacy that he gives to them. And so... Um, most significantly, we'll, we'll finish by looking at Joseph and Judah, which are the longer blessings. But first, let's look at these short blessings. Who he gives positive blessings to are his sons Zebulun, Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. Um, so let's look at Zebulun first in verse 13. He says, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. This is a nice prophetic blessing for Zebulun. He's going to be a beach bum, surfer boy. Um, wh what happens with all of these uh, blessings is when they move into the promised land, um, fast forward in your Bible history to the uh, book of Exodus, right? Moses is raised up by God to lead the children out of Israel. And then they, they come back into the promised land. They cross the Jordan. And Joshua is the one that actually leads them into the promised land. So in the book of Joshua in your Bible, you can actually see how they divide up the land. They've got this whole nation before them. How are they going to divide up the land among the 12 tribes? 
Well, they just roll dice for it. That seems like a logical way to do things, right? So they cast lots, which is a biblical way of doing things, but it seems kind of crazy to me. But the Lord is in control of all of those things. And so what the Lord does is he controls the lots and they perfectly fulfill what Jacob prophesies here at the end of Genesis. Um, it, it appears, according to Joshua 19, um, that 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 Zebulun fills in exactly what Jacob says with one caveat. And the caveat is their border didn't quite go to the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, or the Sea of Galilee. And, and so at first glance, it looks like, man, Jacob almost got it. Like if, if, he, was, if he was betting a parlay, he got, you know, he got nine out of ten, or however many you got to get, right? He's almost there. But then by the time we get to the New Testament, Zebulun's territory had expanded. And so what seemed to not be fulfilled eventually was fulfilled because Zebulun expands over to the shores. Um, in Matthew 4.13 of Jesus, the Bible says he left Nazareth, he went, and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun. And so he's on the Sea of Galilee, and by that time, Zebulun's territory had moved over to fulfill exactly what Jacob said. In the traditional tribal crests and flags in ancient history of the tribe of Zebulun, it has images of fishing vessels and ships. And so we know that this actually uh, came to fruition. Um, so as, as it turns out, the shores of Zebulun are where Jesus would call his first disciples that were fishermen. And so this blessing upon Zebulun is carried out. Another blessing he gives is to his son Dan in verses 16 through 18. He says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. The name Dan means to judge, and it indicates a blessing of help to the people of Israel. And so he prophesies of Dan. He says that, that Dan is going to be a government ruler that's going to help the citizens of the future nation. Uh, these poetic prophecies aren't always clear, but it does seem to indicate that Dan uh, fulfilled these things. In verse 18, Jacob says that he'll wait for salvation, um, which I think shows Jacob's maturity. He had, he had grown up and uh, what, what's interesting about Jacob's character, you guys have heard me over the past year talk about how terrible <laughs> Jacob is. He's really one of the worst Bible characters. He's a deplorable person. And he really doesn't wait and be patient for anything his whole life. Think about that. He doesn't, he doesn't wait for his birthright. He decides he's going to trick his dad. Remember he puts on the, the fur and goes in and deceives Isaac so he can get his birthright early. He doesn't wait for a wife. He, he hastily goes in and Laban tricks him and he gets Leah. He doesn't really wait for anything his whole life. And then uh, finally at the end of his life, he's getting ready to die. And now he's willing to wait. His time's up and he's willing to wait and be patient finally. But he tells Dan that, that through that waiting of salvation, he's going to actually be able to bless uh, the people of Israel, which does come to fruition as well. Uh, we know Dan becomes the judgment, the judgment tribe, the leading tribe of the northern tribes in history. Number three is Gad, his son Gad. In verse 19, he has a short prophecy about Gad. He said, Raiders shall raid Gad. That's not Las Vegas Raiders. That's a different raider. Uh, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. This prophecy shows the resilience of, of God's people, that even though they would be attacked, that they would stand firm, that they would be resilient. Of Asher, we have another short prophecy in verse 20. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. If you're picking a, a tribe to belong to, this is the tribe I want to be in, the one with good food. Amen? This is the tribe that, that we'd all want to be a part of. They eat good. And then Nephtali has another short blessing in verse 21. It says, Nephtali is a, a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Uh, the translation in this in Hebrew actually means it, it, 
in, instead of the word fawns, it's actually words, that Naphtali gives birth to beautiful words is what it literally says. The, it's, a, it's poetic and it's a word picture of Naphtali being peaceful, as peaceful as Bambi, uh, a baby deer, is, is, the, is the imagery here. And, and what, how this would be fulfilled is Naphtali would become known for diplomacy. This was the most peaceful tribe that they, they would always seek for di diplomacy and relationship with other nations rather than just war and violence. Um, now, the application of these things are that these blessings are not just because Jacob really wanted good things to happen to his boys. Jacob wanted that for all of his sons, even the ones that he pronounced curses upon. This is um, what, what's happening here is that Jacob is prophesying by the Spirit of God upon him to predict the future. Some very positive things and some very negative things. Now, clearly, the Spirit of God is upon him. And so he tells Zebulun, Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali that they're going to be blessed. Now what's notable about these guys is they're not standout characters in the book of Genesis. These aren't, these aren't names you've heard a lot about. Um, what's happening is God is showing His grace through these five men. These men were complicit in the sin with their other brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. And their future blessing that they're going to receive is not because they've been the best sons. It's, because of, it's all because of God's grace. And so when we see Jacob praying for this blessing to come to fruition, we should do that as well. And so I want to take a moment to stop and actually spend some time in prayer. If you have uh, your son close to you, I want you to lay a hand on, on him or, or them. And uh, I, I want us to take some time to just pray for blessing for future generations. Um, and we're going to pray that God would not just bless our sons or our grandsons, but, but that we, as men of New Heights Church, would be men that, that bless future generations. One of the, one of, I'll, I'll read it in a little bit. I got it in my notes. But there's a verse in the Bible that says that we, we write things down and record things and pray for things so that people yet to be created will praise the Lord. And so I long for us as, as men of the church to be men that pray for people to come to know Jesus and that we deeply go after this and pursue it. And it starts with the young men in our church. Okay? All right, let's look at the cursings now. Anybody in here like to cuss? <coughs> no, right? No, not in this room. Um, oh, 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 oh. We're, we're not going into that. Hold off, hold off. Okay? All right, let's look at these cursings now. Now, this is interesting because this is, this is the opposite of what you would expect Jacob to do in this scenario. He pronounces very negative things upon his sons. Now, let me remind you, most of us don't want to curse our children, okay? So it's easy for us to look at Jacob here and get down on him. Most of us don't want to curse our kids. If you have kids, I know they make you want to curse sometimes, amen? Um, but most of us don't want... Yeah. I did. I did. He's exactly right. Thank you for the sermon illustration, Tava. Case in point. Don't, no, don't talk about your mama. I'm, I'm telling you. Don't do it. Don't do it. So these cursings are not Jacob being mean. Okay? This is him uh, proclaiming the truth of God. Okay, and so what, what makes it seem strange is it, it just seems very counterintuitive for a father to pronounce for the future, not, not the moment that he's angry at them, but, but he's saying for the rest of their life this, these curses are going to be upon them. Now, you guys seen the McDonald's notes that have been floating around Milton? 
like I know I know Baker got one I think like if you're lucky enough it's like the Milton version of fortune cookies like they've been writing handwritten notes at McDonald's dropping it into go bags and stuff but what if those got like really dark like instead of like you're worth it you're doing great what if they turned into like I'm watching you or you know <laughs> you're a failure at everything you know like stuff like that it would just get disturbing, and this is kind of where Jacob's blessings go. They get a little bit disturbing here. Now, these, these cursings fall on Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, and Benjamin. Okay, um, Not you, Benjamin, different Benjamin. And all of these men receive negative blessings. They, they receive cursings. First, let's start with Reuben. He's actually the first one. And so keep this in mind, when, when Jacob gathers all of his sons together and it's that night before Christmas type vibe, the very first thing he leads out with are verses 3 and 4 about Reuben, where he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. Good start so far. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now, so this is a wild one. Right out of the gate, he, he starts off complimentary by saying you have might, you have strength and dignity and power. But then he says you're unstable as water. And he says because you've slept with my wife. So it goes real Jerry Springer from the get-go. Um, remember that, that Reuben had, uh, had sexual relations with Bilhah, Jacob's wife. And so henceforth, he lost the rights of the firstborn. And so this curse comes upon him. Now, so his firstborn birthright would have then went to the next son and then to the next son in line with the birth order. The next two are um, Simeon and Levi, who don't receive this blessing and birthright because they're cursed as well. He continues in verse 5, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now this also comes to fruition when lots are cast for these two tribes because of their violent past, uh, that God makes sure that they don't receive the territories that are beneficial like the other tribes receive. Um, what, what happens with uh, Simeon is he is engulfed on all sides by the tribe of Judah. That, that if you look at, the map, at a map of the ancient 12 tribes of Israel, Judah is all the, all the way around Simeon. Simeon is like only exists inside of Judah. So they don't have their own borders at all. Levi doesn't get any territory. He gets scattered among six different cities in the Levitical priesthood. And so he doesn't get, this is like me as a pastor living in the parsonage. Like I don't get to own property. I just live in the parsonage. And that happened with Levi. He didn't get any of his own land. He just got to live among the land of the other tribes. Thus this prophecy is fulfilled and these things are cursed upon these three men. Uh, Jacob continues on cursing Issachar in verse 14. He says, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Now, this, this cursing is subtle, but he's, he's basically pointing out that Issachar has a lot of potential and a lot of strength, 
A sheep folds would be like a saddlebag, and he says the, the strong donkey just lays down, finds a place to rest. He's basically saying that Issachar will be lazy, that he'll have lots of strength and potential, but no initiative or no drive until ultimately forced slave labor will come upon him, which comes to pass for this tribe as well. Uh, fifth and, and final in this category is Benjamin. A surprisingly negative prophecy over the baby boy, the youngest of the sons. It could, some people actually interpret this as positive, but I think it, it's most likely negative and speaks to a carnal ruthlessness of Benjamin. In verse 27, he says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. And so as we look at all these cursings, and remember these prophecies come true, I want, I want you to ask this morning, why does God include these negative prophecies? Why does God feel the need to include that in this passage? Isn't it unnecessarily embarrassing for these sons to be named and their sins to be recorded for generations to come like this? Well, I think it, one of the reasons is it serves as a healthy reminder to us that, that, we, that our sins have, have generational consequences. That the way that we fail doesn't just affect us. We don't just act in a vacuum. We don't only affect ourselves. And I, listen, particularly for men, I think we live in a society that has, that has stretched adolescence far into adulthood, that has encouraged men to delay any sort of responsibility. And, and our society, I think, trains young men to remain young men and never become real men. And, and the, the curse of that is that we fall into the trap of thinking what we do only affects us. That if I don't get a wife and kids, then, then I'm, I'm just, I'm freeloading, I'm on my own. But the reality is, is everything we do affects other people, whether we like to admit that or not. This is a harsh reminder of that. But, but I think it also serves as a healthy reminder to us in where we come from. Some of you come from really broken past. Listen, I, I get not all of our genealogies have privilege and blessing in them. But I promise you, every single one of our genealogies is filled with cursing and dysfunction. Abuse and trauma. Not everybody gets a privileged upbringing, but everybody has sin in where they come from. But the beauty of the gospel is out of cursed tribes come redeemed people. Amen? That even out of, out of bad circumstances come, come redemption. One of, the, one of the really cool things about, about the, these five tribes is, is God uses some people from these tribes to do amazing and beautiful things. John Calvin said of these cursings, he said, The temporal punishments with which Jacob mildly and paternally corrected his sons would not subvert the covenant of grace on which the benediction was founded, but rather by obliterating their stains would restore them to the original degree of honor from which they had fallen, so that at least they should be patriarchs among the people of God. What Calvin's pointing out is even though these men had failed in great ways, and even though they received cursings which actually played far into generations to come, they would play a part in God's plan still. The Issachar, from, from him came men who understood timeliness and culture and society. In First Chronicles 12, it says of Issachar, men understand the times to know what Israel ought to do. The Levites would become priests as they administer sacrifices and oversee worship for God's people. 
Paul is, is one who was born of the tribe of Benjamin. So even we see the cursings of him come to fruition in Paul. He, he said in Philippians 3 that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin. There are tons of examples. Barnabas was a, a New Testament pastor who was a Levite. Tons of examples we see in the New Testament and, and old of people coming from these tribes. And what this means is that no matter what we come from or no matter what we've done, we can still participate in the redemption of God. Amen? And so I want to spend another time in prayer and pray for our boys again and pray for the future of our church again. And, and this time I want to focus our prayer on freedom from cursed backgrounds. Um, Roger, if you would, I want to put you on the spot and ask you to lead us in prayer. If you come up just in the middle of the room. Yes, you. Um, I want you to lead us in a prayer of, of freedom from abuse. Like, listen, we don't know how, how much trauma and abuse is represented in this room. And as men, we don't like to talk about it a lot. But, but I want you to see in this passage, I think it proves to us that no matter how messy of circumstances you came from, you can break patterns of, of abuse and trauma and sin. And I want to pray also, Roger, I want, I want you to lead us in prayer that, that we would be repentant towards our own sons, our own grandsons, youth in this church, that we would repent of ways that, that we fail. Um, that's, this is what God is calling these tribes to, to repent of the ways that they're not living up to the standard. And so, Roger, if you would, lead us in prayers of repentance and freedom. And, um, and you guys, again, lay hands on your boys if they're close to you. Amen. Thanks, Roger. All right, we got two more sons to look at. Joseph and Judah. Let's look at Joseph first. Joseph stands out at the end of Genesis, these final two chapters, as a, as a type of Christ. Um, really, we've seen him... Uh, he's, he's the only character in Genesis that's portrayed in a, in a constantly positive light. Um, his sin's not highlighted. Not to say that he's perfect. He wasn't. But in a literary way, he was, he was portrayed as the righteous one of this family. In chapter 49, verse 22, Jacob, as he's prophesying over Joseph, he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty, beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. And so Joseph had clearly the, the heaviest blessing from his dad. If you look at all these blessings, Joseph is the one that has the most flowerful language and uh, most present blessing and, and positivity from Jacob. Jacob acknowledges in verse 24 how he was preserved. Um, he says, by the hands of the mighty one, the, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. This is a reference to the Messiah, the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one who saved Joseph and he is the one who Joseph's story is ultimately about. He's the one who all of our stories is about. And the image of, of blessing being crowned upon him in verse 26, the brow of him is set apart from his brothers with blessing because it was placed upon him. 
This image is a crown from that chief shepherd that's mentioned in that passage as well. It reminds me of 1 Peter 5, 4, which says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so Joseph continued in his Christ-like and shepherd-like treatment of the family of God, even after Jacob dies. Jacob dies at, at, the, at the transition of chapters 49 and 50. And then in verse 15 of chapter 50, Joseph has dealings with his brothers. And he deals with them with grace and forgiveness. Verse 15 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be Joseph will hate us. Pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because of the evil they did to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came down and fell before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. But look how Joseph responds. He said to them, Do not fear, for I, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Those who had sinned against him, he acted as Christ does to us as sinners. He comforts them, he speaks kindly to them, he forgives them, and he takes care of them. Sam Storms commented on this passage, What we learn then is that everything we encounter in life, whether it be a tragedy or a triumph, falls within the framework of God's overarching, always loving, and ever wise and eternal plan. So Joseph's legacy was one of holiness and kindness, as we see a holy legacy from him. He was carried along by a chief shepherd. I want you to see three things that Joseph did that you can emulate. Number one, he accepted God's plan. There's a lot of times we try, to, we try to fight against what the Lord's doing in our lives, the places He puts us, the people He puts us around. Y'all ever like find yourself in a position, you know God wants you to do something, and you're just like, ah, I want to. We, we, we buck against that. Joseph is a good example because he accepted God's plan. Secondly, he became an instrument of God's plan. Not only did he accept it, but he was willing to step into it to proactively go toward what God had set before him. And thirdly, he brought others along into God's plan with him. He brought all the nations to Egypt and said, be a part of, of this provision. He brought everyone into God's plan along with him. And we can do the same thing. We can accept God's plan for our life. We can be an instrument of God's plan and we can bring others along with us. So what's keeping you from doing the same? What's keeping you from taking the legacy of the gospel to other people? Let me tell you, it starts, starts right around us. With the young men and women that we have around us, our own children, our own grandchildren. It starts with the young people in this church. But it doesn't have to end there, and it shouldn't end there. That verse that I referenced earlier, Psalm 102.18, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Listen, if your life story was written down, not that anyone would want to read it, but if they did, would it lead people to Jesus? Would it point people to a Savior? You see, we often spend a lot of time trying to hide our flaws and try to look like we have it all together. But the pictures of the men in Jacob's family, his 12 sons, are pictures that remind us that our flaws being forgiven are actually what lead people to Jesus. Jesus. 
that when, we, when we're willing to be transparent and honest with people, that we finally let down our guard as men and admit we don't have it all together, that's when people see, you know what? It's okay that I don't have it all together. They, they hope in a, a bigger Savior than themselves. You see, the embarrassment of the people in the Bible is for our sake, so that, so that we can see people like Reuben, who had this embarrassing story that's recorded for all of history to hear. People like Reuben can walk with the Lord. Okay, maybe I can too. And the book ends with hope. And so point four, and as I conclude, is a hopeful promise. And we see this wrapped up in Judah. The book of Genesis ends with hope, specifically that the sons of Jacob would one day return to the promised land after famine. In Genesis 49:33, Jacob finished commanding his sons. He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last. And he was gathered to his people. So Jacob dies. Joseph also dies in chapter 50, verses 24 and 25. It says, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. This hope is rooted not just in a physical place. It's rooted in a spiritual promise, right? God had promised them the land. God had promised them that they would return to possess it. God had promised all of these things through Scripture. And so it's not just about going back to the promised land. It's about fulfilling what God had promised. It's the promise of Jesus, ultimately. Look at Judah's prophecy as we finish. It's in chapter 49, verses 8 through 12. Hey, boys, I'm almost done. Okay? Keep it together. Okay. All right, stay quiet. All right, verse 8 says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. This is poetic, but it is important that we understand what this passage is prophesying. Jacob is prophesying of the coming of Jesus Christ. It's a messianic prophecy. Although Jacob sought to bestow the birthright upon, his, upon Joseph, that legacy would actually belong to Judah. Reuben, Simeon, Levi had all been cursed. Fourth in line was Judah. Now of Judah, it is said that all tribes would bow down to him. He's compared to a lion. This is kingly language. You see a scepter mentioned in verse 10. Wine and milk are poetic allusions to how common these blessings would be in the, in the ultimate king's kingdom. Judah wasn't made a king, though. Judah never became the king of Israel. That just wasn't set up in his time. Ultimately, it was much later that a king would be crowned out of Judah's family named David. He would fulfill this kingly prophecy. Basham sons, be quiet. Hey, be quiet. This prophecy was fulfilled in the Davidic covenant 
And we see when God crowns David, he gives him an eternal promise that leads us directly to Jesus. In 2 Samuel 7, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So who is this eternal king with a kingdom that lasts forever? It's Jesus Christ. The prophecy that shows us that Judah's tribe would from Judah's tribe would come a king, is, is whispering the name of Jesus. Verse 10 even says, until tribute comes. The Hebrew word is Shiloh. The, a lot of scholars have trouble translating this. Shiloh is just a word that means one to whom it belongs. And so he's talking about the scepter. The scepter would be in Judah's tribe until the one to whom it belongs comes. Calvin's interpretation of, of the Hebrew word Shil, the, the root word in Shiloh, is son. John Calvin wrote, Christ had not only been promised, but his origin had been pointed out as with a finger 2,000 years before he appeared. It's clear that, that this scripture is prophesying of the coming King, Jesus Christ. Therefore, all the hope of, of the, the terrible sin of the family of Jacob is not rested in any of the sons of Jacob. It's rested in one who will come from their loins. It's rested in the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. We see this fulfilled at the end of the book from Genesis. We get to Revelation and Revelation chapter 5 when John is saying, who is worthy to open up these scrolls and these seals and the judgment of God and the ushering into the kingdom? No man is found worthy to do that. None of us are worthy to do that. None of us are worthy to be kings. Who will it be? Revelation 5 says, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. A few verses later, it says that after that's happened, they sing a new song saying, Worthy you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, just as Jacob said in the beginning of the book in Genesis, that all peoples would come and obey the one that would come from the tribe of Judah. It's Jesus Christ. And so as we pray and as we point people to this Savior, I pray that as men of this local church, that we would be fervent about this, that we would be serious and passionate about this, that we would make it our life's aim to raise our own families in the hope of the gospel and that it would expand and overflow out of our homes, into our communities, and into our world for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Then we'll get a final song and we'll sing together. Lord, thank you for the grace that you've shown us. And so, Lord, as we finish up the book of Genesis, we see your hope in these verses. We see, God, that you have, you have brought us out of cursing, out of depravity, out of sin, and you've brought us into a marvelous light, not through King Judah or King David, but through King Jesus, the promised one. Jesus, you are on the throne forever and ever and ever, and Lord, we exist to lift you high. And so, God, I pray that you would be exalted in our lives, that we would root our our daily rhythms in your paths, that we would talk of your law as we sit with our children and grandchildren, as we fellowship with our church. Lord, may we be available to help with 
with younger generations in our church. And so, God, I pray that you would make us a people that exists to lift you high. And, God, that you would establish New Heights Church on the gospel. And, Lord, if this church ever ceases to be centered on the gospel of you, Jesus, may you close it down. May you work through others that will. And, Lord, may we remain faithful as we know you will be. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.